Remember, whenever we're thinking about love in the Church of Jesus Christ, that we're called to a higher standard of love than the world. We're called to love people who are different from us, uh, people who are opposed to us at times, people that we might not even like very much or want to spend time with. And here, John is saying, if the Father loved us by giving what was precious to Him in order to meet our greatest need, uh, we also are to do that for one another. Welcome back to Midweek Musings. I'm Pastor Taylor. I'm here again with my co-host, Pastor Daniel Ventura. It's good to be with you, brother. Good to be here with you too, brother. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been been a couple weeks now since uh, we've recorded one of these episodes. And why was that? Well, we were busy in uh, preparation for Synod. We had Synod in Buffalo, New York last week. And so we had to take the week off preparing for that. And then we also were in different pulpits this past Sunday, filling in at different congregations in light of Synod. And so that was a big thing on our plates. And we want to tell you a little bit about our time at Synod. Brother Taylor, if you wouldn't mind, why don't you just tell us what is a Synod and where does it come from? Yeah, good question. I'm sure everyone is, or many people are thinking the same thing. So uh, what is a Synod and how do we understand it from a biblical perspective? Well, when we look at our own foundational principles for our church. One of them is this, because the church is Christ's possession, so it belongs to Jesus Christ, and because he is its head, he is our leader, our king, the principles governing the church are not a matter of human preference, but of divine revelation. And so the way we govern our church life as an individual church and in our relationship with other churches is not just up to what we prefer as humans, but it is something that we should derive from God himself as he has revealed it in his word. And so there's a passage in the book of Acts chapter 15 that I think is a good starting point here. And there in the book of Acts chapter 15, like any good story, it begins with a problem, a problem that arose in the early churches. Some of the believers that had embraced Jesus as the Messiah were insisting that the new Gentile converts, those who are not Jewish ethnically, they were insisting that they would be circumcised and that they would have to submit to the entirety of the law of Moses including the dietary laws and other purification rites. And this caused a big issue because some others were saying, no, it's not necessary. And we read this in Acts 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they had this big question, this debate, and a dissension that was not small, Luke tells us. And how did they resolve it? Well, we find that they didn't approach it individualistically, but rather corporately. Each congregation didn't say, well, we'll figure this out on our own, but rather they saw the wisdom of figuring it out together with the rest of the body of Christ, with other like-minded churches. And we should remember that the early church was the natural continuation of the people of Israel. So the Jewish way of relating to one another, of seeing unity with one another, was the common mindset at this point in the early church. 
And if we go back and look at the Jewish people and their long history, we see that they were united in their faith and in their practices. But there was a time as well when they were scattered abroad into different regions, the dispersion. And because of that, they had these synagogues, uh, meeting places in major cities around the ancient Middle East. And in that way, they always upheld their unity as a people of God, bound together by the covenants that God had made with them and their ancestors before them. They had shared common religious practices of praying and singing the Psalms, the same ones. They recited the same scriptures. They, in their synagogues, all read and preached the same text each week according to the same liturgical calendar. For example, each morning and evening, nearly every Jew would wake up and go down to bed praying the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And just by reciting that morning and evening, it was a way in which they were uniting their hearts to God and to one another as the Lord is our God, they said, our God, he who is one, and so his people are one as well. And according to the law of Moses, they also traveled to Jerusalem three times each year for what were the pilgrim festivals. These festivals kept them united as a people of God and tied to the temple worship that existed there in Jerusalem. Now, why am I mentioning all this? Well, it's important to remember this because the early church carried forward that same mentality. They embraced Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, yes, but Jesus didn't come to do away with everything that had existed prior. He came to fulfill the law for God's people, to redeem them from the curse, to renew God's people by the Spirit of God, and then also to include outsiders into God's people. So Jesus' plan was not to start an entirely new religion, but rather bring to perfection the old Jewish religion through his life, death, and resurrection. Now, in comparison, we don't have one centralized location anymore around a temple in Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus is the true temple of God. And yet, we are still one people under one God and bound together by the one covenant of grace. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, saying, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, because of that covenantal Jewish mindset, we find here, as we look back to Acts chapter 15, that the natural instinct of the church was to come together in order to resolve this problem as one collective unit. As Proverbs eleven fourteen says, where there is no guidance, a people fails, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. And that's what we see the early church doing in Acts 15. That big problem arose, it was big enough to affect all of the churches. And so in verse 2, we read that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And then when they arrived, we read in verse 6 that the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Um, it wasn't just the apostles that decided on their own, but rather they included the elders as well. And together they convened to discuss the matter, to deliberate and seek the resolution. And when we consider church history, beyond what we find in the Bible itself, we find that uh, as 
theological and practical problems arose amongst the churches, they followed this same principle of wisdom. For example, Christian bishops, or we might call them elders, gathered together in the year 325 at the city of Nicaea in order to come to a theological consensus on the deity and humanity of Christ, his two natures united in his one person. And so there at the Council of Nicaea, they dealt with another problem that had arisen and they came together to find a consensus in the wisdom of a multitude of counselors. And so we see from its roots in Judaism, the early church and the church throughout the ages has always sought to be united in its life and its doctrine. And we too should always desire the unity of Christ's church in a common confession of the biblical faith and in our way of life as we seek to follow Jesus together. And in light of that, no congregation should stand alone in isolation from others. That would be folly, it would be dangerous. And so in continuation of this principle, our own church is in a federative, that is covenantal, relationship with other like-minded churches in the United Reformed Churches of North America. We all subscribe to the same creeds and confessions, and we all follow and uphold the same church order, which structures the way we govern our own churches and our relationships with each other according to biblical principles. In addition, every two years, each congregation sends two delegates, ministers or elders, to convene at a location for what we call synod. And this gets back to that original question you asked, Pastor Daniel. The word synod comes from the Greek word, which means meeting. It's a word that's composed of two, syn, together, and chodos, which is way. And so this way together, this meeting together for a purpose. And one of our foundational principles as United Reformed Churches of North America it captures the wisdom of this very well. It says this, Member churches meet together in consultation to guard against human imperfections and to benefit from the wisdom of a multitude of counselors in the broader assemblies. The decisions of such assemblies derive their authority from their conformity to the word of God. And so at the end there, we're stating that important principle that ultimately our authority over us is the word of of God. And as we meet together, that is what we're seeking, seeking conformity to the word of God in all things. So hopefully that answers the question for you and in anyone else who might be wondering. Now, brother, as we've, as we've come back from Synod in Buffalo, New York, what were some of the highlights for you, brother? You know, it's a joy to see a lot of fellow pastors that we haven't got to see for yeah, over three years, especially due to the pandemic, we weren't able to have synod as early as we wanted to. So it was good to see a lot of fellow pastors and to hear about how they're doing. You know, um, a lot of things happen during the actual meetings of synod, but it's good to, you know, take those times after synod or sometimes before and just spend time with other brothers in different settings and, you know, talk in more informal ways about the work of the church and the joys and sorrows of ministry. And that time is always a rich blessing uh, but another highlight for me that actually happened during Synod was on Wednesday night, we had a, a missions night. And during this night, missionaries, both domestic and foreign, were able to give a three to four minute presentation about their work and to give an update about what God is doing on these different mission fields. And so 
we were able to actually give an update as well on the Spanish ministry here in Ontario and share the joy of this new season of life that we're in, co-laboring together in the English and Spanish congregations here in Ontario URC and able to pass out some brochures that updated uh, people on our work. And um, it was a joy to share our work, but also just to hear from the many missionaries that have been sent out by the URC overseas and here um, in the U.S. as well, and to hear about what's going on. And so that was awesome. Our missions coordinator, Rich Bout, uh, led that along with Pastor Greg Bilsma from the missions committee, the chairman, and they did just a great job in organizing that so that brothers could share some pictures from their ministries and give an update and also share some prayer requests. And that just gave a really nice flavor to the whole synod feel because it, it reminded us that, you know, what we're doing at Synod is serving the work of our churches in all these different places so that we could be more effective ministers and um, also those who are working together, especially when it comes to, to missions and bringing the Great Commission uh, to the ends of the earth. Mm. What about for you, brother? What was the highlight for you? Well, yeah, brother, I, like you said, a lot of the same things that one evening uh, where we got to hear from other church planters and see what God is doing, uh, just a little glimpse into the work of missions in different parts of the world or in North America was so encouraging and inspiring to see that and then to all unite together and multiple times to pray for one another in these matters to receive the prayer from uh, one of the ministers who prayed and led the whole synod in a prayer for us and our own church and work in Ontario URC in both English and Spanish was so encouraging and empowering in that sense, you know, to know that we do not stand alone, but we have this group, this band of believers who are behind us for the glory of Christ. So that was great. Um, now, we've talked a little bit about some highlights, and we've given sort of a panoramic, big view of what Synod is and a biblical understanding of that. But perhaps people are still wondering, what does a day at Synod look like? And so maybe you can walk us through what it looks like, Pastor Daniel. Yeah, you know, Synod is a, it's a very busy time. It starts early in the morning, about 8 a.m., and usually gets done about 9 p.m. And usually early on in the week, um, we meet for what's called pre-advice committees. And so basically, we get this big honking agenda, three to 400 pages of Things like overtures, which are things that come from consistories on, you know, changes, appeals, and also advice on different reports and different things that are going on in our federation. And these committees, their job is to go through some of these heavier items and to present something on the floor of Synod um, that would that Synod would be able to handle in a in an easier way. So they give advice on how to go about handling a particular overture or a particular appeal. And so they give advice in the form of recommendations. And that recommendation will come on the floor of the big assembly, which is Synod. And, um, it, you know, it doesn't always get, you know, um, approved exactly how the committee puts it. So it gets talked about a lot on the floor of Synod. And so early on in the week, we have a lot of these pre-advice committees that are working really hard to make Synod go smooth and to give advice on all of these big items. And then we actually have on the floor of Synod the opportunity to talk about these things and to wrestle through them and to speak to them. And then we vote on them and uh, move forward with all these different items. And so that's a, that's a big part of our day, the pre-advice committees, the actual work of Synod when we're all gathered together. And, um, and then a lot of just enjoying as well uh, reports from other 
pastors and elders that are laboring in different NAPARC churches. Um, so we got to hear a number of different uh, fraternal delegates give an, a, a report on, you know, what God is doing in the Canadian Reformed churches and mm. the RPCNA and the OPC. And that was a really nice thing, too, to hear about that. And then we, we conclude that time with prayer uh, for these brothers, remembering our, our, our sister relations that we have with some of these other churches. Anything you want to add to that, brother? I think that's a great description, brother. And one other just detail, the way we relate to one another and have these deliberations is very parliamentary. And so mm-hmm. at the very, very beginning, you know, we appoint or seat officers just for the Senate itself. They're not there throughout the year. Once they're appointed at Synod, at the close of Synod, they lose that position so it's just for the time of synod but we have you know a chairman who's presiding over it ensuring that everyone is speaking respectfully and addressing uh, the chair not speaking to one another ensure that everything is done in a very parliamentary uh, way and it does allow for orderly discussion that is respectful and loving and that that's a good thing to see now, brother, as we're thinking about, you know, these discussions that happened on the floor of Synod as they're, you know, the chairman's presiding over it, ensuring that all is done respectfully and in honor, was there any particular topic that's worth mentioning and, and sharing with our listeners? Sure. If you're interested, listener, in hearing about some of the items that we talked about at Synod, you could actually go to our URCNA page. It's urcna.org synod. And there's what's called press releases, which gives you a bit of an update on everything that took place that day and a lot of the highlights of our work. Uh, But one of the big ones that we talked about was in regards to missions and as a federation, how to structure our mission so that we could work together faithfully and promoting the Great Commission overseas and also here in the U.S. And so there was conversation and debate on how to go about structuring our missions. In the past, we had a, a missions coordinator who helped serve both domestic and foreign missions. And there was debate and conversation on if that should look different, if we should hire a domestic missions coordinator, if we should allow the individual classes to kind of be that body that would help oversee and serve and provide advice for those church plants and missionaries. And so, yeah, there were some changes to how we're doing missions with not having a domestic missions coordinator, but a foreign missions coordinator. And now a lot more of our um, advice and counsel and and care will come from the local classes and the brothers who will care and look after the the church plants that are there and also future church plants. And so we we trust the Lord with these things and we, we trust that God will be at work in this new season of life that we're in as the URCNA. And we look for his blessing upon us and in, in making these decisions. And one of the things that was encouraging about this particular topic and discussion was was how it was gone about. Um, you know, it was a topic that was definitely on the hearts of many people going into Synod, uh, maybe even heated at times in, in the lead up to Synod. But on the floor itself, it was a blessing to see the debate and the discussions uh, were done in brotherly love. And that's just so important when we're when we're talking about any issue as Christians, especially as pastors and elders, we want to be models for our flocks and 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 showing forth love to one another, even brothers that we might disagree with. Mm. And so that was an encouragement to see on the Flores Synod. Well, that is such an important thing to emphasize and to draw our attention to, highlight, because as we come together, we're not just about 
the truth. We're about speaking the truth in love. And it's important, as he said, to model that, to exemplify that, especially as leaders of the church. And it was a joy to see that in action and to participate in that. Uh, because that's what the world wants to see as well. Not just that we are declaring to them the truth, but that God's love has affected us and changes the way we relate to one another. Amen, brother. And that reminds me of what I preached on on Sunday, you know, having exchanged pulpits, uh, hit a different text. And this Sunday we hit 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12. But I just want to read verse 10. It says this, uh, Love consists in this, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Dear friends, if God so loved us in this way, we also must love one another. And I think that's so important to remember whenever we're thinking about love in the church of Jesus Christ, that, that we're called to a higher standard of love than the world. We're called to love people who are different from us, uh, people who are opposed to us at times, people that we might not even like very much or want to spend time with. Um, God loved us in that way. When we were sinners, enemies of God, rebelling against him, that's when he sent his son in this world. And his son is the manifestation of the very love of God. And he came to save us and he came to bring us back to God. And here John is saying, if the father loved us by giving what was precious to him in order to meet our greatest need, uh, we also are to do that for one another. And so it was a joy to see that happen at Synod with the discussions and us laying aside our preferences at times and laying aside our own opinions and what we want, insisting on our own way, and mm -hmm. to be able to prefer others in love. It was a joy to see that modeled by brothers in the Lord at Synod. And that's something I know we hope will be in our churches as well, that will be these places that show forth love in a very countercultural way as we reflect the love of God. That's true. you know, And it is a privilege and a responsibility for us now returning from Synod and coming to minister here uh, in our own local congregation to bring that reality to bear on our own congregation, our life together. And so, as you just read, you know, why do we love? We love one another because God first loved us. And so let us continue to meditate and soak in the love of God and may his love inspire and compel us to love one another as we seek to show the world not only the truth of God, but also the love of God. Well, thank you for listening to Midweek Musings. We always appreciate and are thankful for you taking the time to listen in. And we look forward to bringing you another musing next week.